Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. While headlines of Russia's invasion of Ukraine are splashed across front pages and the top nabs of news websites and grim weather forecasts just below it, it's not the last week in February that everyone might have been hoping for, but here we are. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. This is already shaping up to be, I think it's fair to say, you know, the second enormous story of the year after the rise and happily the fall of the Omicron variant. We'll talk about long haul COVID or long COVID and how it's affecting a local family. For five weeks, we had fevers and it just never ended. And we'll learn about the battle in New York against doping and horse racing. In our work, we were looking at the state's capacity to go after that cheating. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. First up, let's discuss what appeared in the Times Union and on timesunion.com this week. We are here once again with Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler. We're going to go over the top headlines. And the inarguably, the top headline is an international one. We're talking early on Thursday on uh, New York time, and it's a pretty grim situation it's not entirely unexpected that Russia has attacked Ukraine. And uh, to quote the headlines I was seeing, it shattered peace in Europe. The effects are now rippling around the world, understandably. Um, so what is your sense of uh, the impact that it has made here in New York and in the capital region? Well, obviously, the most immediate impact is on folks in the capital region in the Hudson Valley who have friends and loved ones in Ukraine or in the um, in the regions around Ukraine, but obviously, especially within the within the borders of Ukraine. And uh, we are reaching out to them as we have been in recent weeks to find out what they are doing to help, what capital region residents maybe without those ties can do to help. You know, we're all seeing the reports of people who are fleeing 
major Ukrainian cities or who are sheltering in bomb shelters that as recently as yesterday were subway stations. It's obviously alarming for everyone, of course. There are going to be repercussions in the sense of what this kind of international crisis is going to do to the stock market. Even as we speak, the stock market is not doing too well, and the price of gas is um, going through the roof. Those are elements of this that could have really long-lasting knock-on effects. And this is already shaping up to be, I think it's fair to say, you know, the second enormous story of the year after the rise and happily the fall of the Omicron variant. If we're past this crisis in six weeks, two months, as we were with that one, or at least as it appears to be at this point, um, I think everybody will be a lot less antsy than everyone is feeling right now. Let's move on to some more local news. Uh, Last spring, we saw tensions between Albany police and civil rights protesters flare a bit outside South Station in Albany South End. And at the time, some of the police officers were observed to have been covering their badge numbers with a a white tape. Um, Since then, the mayor had demanded an investigation into that badge covering, but um, that report is still not out yet. So what's the latest there? The altercation, the incident where this occurred was the clearing out of the encampment alongside Albany Police Department's South Station in Albany's South End back in April. There was a confrontation. It was, of course, a very you know, physical uh, removal of that encampment that had been in place for a couple of days along Arch Street. And uh, yeah, officers were wearing riot gear. They were wearing helmets. They were wearing KN95 masks, and they were covering up their badges, which essentially made them completely anonymous. There is a very unfortunate history of police in these types of situations covering up their badges, including at Attica. And uh, the police department uh, was really forced to respond. Mayor Kathy Sheehan um, asked for a report. The report, we learned, was completed in December. We are now two and a half months past that, and the report still hasn't come out. Steve Hughes, our reporter, has been asking for it. He has foiled for it and has still not received it. The latest we heard from the city clerk is that the report is being redacted. Why this report would take two and a half months to be redacted before public release, I have no idea. We will continue to push for its release and we'll report on its contents. All right. Uh, Moving on to uh, another headline this week, the operator of the limo company that supplied the limo in the tragic crash, uh, the fatal crash in Schoharie of 2018, He's finally broken a long-held silence uh, on the subject. So tell us, what did he say this week? He has had the first of what will probably be a couple of depositions in the civil suits that have been brought by the estates and the families of the uh, 20 people who died in the Schoharie limo crash more than three years ago. And uh, uh, specific uh, to this first deposition was whether or not Malik Riaz Hussein, who is Nauman Hussein's uncle, was involved in the financing of Prestige Limousine, the company that owned the stretch limousine that was involved in the catastrophe. That's significant because Malik Hussein is uh, one of Pakistan's uh, wealthiest real estate developers. 
and he would be a very deep-pocketed potential defendant, or he is right now in this suit. He is seeking to have himself removed from the case, saying he had nothing to do with the limousine business. Nauman Hussein revealed that Malik Hussein was involved in his brothers, that is Shahed Hussein, his uh, motel business. But uh, as far as Nauman knew, was not involved in the limousine business. Of course, in future depositions, we're hoping to hear a lot more about what Prestige Limousine did in terms of you know the regulation, the inspection, the oversight of its vehicles, and what uh, state authorities did or did not do to keep the company in compliance, because clearly they did not do nearly enough. Now, if you really want to immerse yourself in this story, I highly recommend you go back to a couple episodes ago of this podcast where we talked to our uh, reporter, Larry Rulison, who has broken so many stories um, on this since it happened, and uh, New York Magazine writer Ben Ryder Howe. It's a fascinating episode. All right. So another bit of news up in Washington County, the Cambridge School District just won't give up on its controversial school mascot. They're going to court to fight to keep it. So what's the story there? Yeah, this is yet another twist in the long story of the Cambridge School District's kind of push-me-pull-you response to criticism uh, that it's received over the fact that its sports team mascot is the Indian. And uh, the state education department has asked and has steadily begun stepping up these requests into demands that school school districts please ditch, you know, Native American themed mascots because they tend to be offensive. Although uh, there are others who say, no, no, these uh, merely honor, uh, you know, our regional Native American heritage. But the state education department ordered uh, Cambridge to ditch that mascot in response to a parent's complaint, a formerly constituted school board voted to get rid of it. A new school board was voted in. There were enough pro-Indian, as it were, members of that newly constituted board to reverse that decision. And now, this week, the board voted three to two to appeal the state's order. This is going to involve legal costs that local taxpayers will now bear the district apparently, or the, at least the board, has come to the conclusion that this is a, a worthwhile enterprise and a, a worthwhile use of school resources. All right. One final topic for today, and I want to introduce it with a slight anecdote here. When I was about seven or eight years old, I went to the biggest castle I'd ever seen. I did a little tour of it with my mother for a kind of a holiday Uh, house tour in the area. And it was just the biggest, grandest, most amazing house I'd ever seen in my life. It had a glass elevator. It had an indoor pool. It checked all the boxes for my, you know, seven-year-old dream home. It was, of course, Len Rock, which is up in Saratoga County, which is a house that has now been bought for $1.9 million. And it really made a lot of news this week. So can you tell us what happened up there? Yeah, I mean, you know more about the house than I do, but it was built decades ago by uh, an insurance, a very successful, obviously, insurance guy named Al Lawrence, and it is grand, and uh, it sold for $1.9 million. 
the news there is that it is that's not that much more than it sold for about 13 years ago, the last time it changed hands. It's a house with a history kind of straight out of a gothic novel, including not just allegations, but convictions concerning virtually indentured, you know, servants who who were forced to work there, deaths by plane crash, uh, all kinds of uh, controversy. Truly, if you wrote a book about it, it could be one of those uh, books where there's a woman in a diaphanous nightgown holding a candelabra running away from Lenrock, which, by the way, is Cornell <laughs> spelled backwards. Cornell spelled backwards, which is the alma mater of Al Lawrence, correct? Correct. Wow. Yeah, I am. I'm seeing the graphic novel play out in my head right now. So maybe there'll be more to come on that. <laughs> All right, Casey, thank you so much. We'll check back in with you next week. Yes, thanks so much. As always, you can learn more about all of the topics and the issues that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. All right, it's a question on many people's minds lately. It is certainly on my mind. With COVID-19 positivity rates lowering, along with associated hospitalizations and deaths, are we nearing the beginning of the end with this pandemic? Or the end of the end? I checked in with Times Union health reporter Bethany Bump for her take. Boy, you know, I would not want to be the person who has to make the definitive call on that. <laughs> but I will say, like, the experts, the scientists, the people who are watching this would certainly not say that we're post-COVID. They would probably agree that we're entering a phase now where we've all sort of decided, like, okay, we should probably learn to live with this because some of these vaccination rates just aren't budging. But at the same time, there is this sort of alternative view of it, like we need to be going even harder on vaccinations because like we shouldn't just be living with these high numbers of infections, which are leading to deaths. Um, but overall, we're in a good place overall. Like as fast as we saw Omicron come, it has waned. Like it has gone away very quickly. There's still infections out there. There's still um, sickness in the community for sure. I want to say the capital region's positivity rate currently is around 3.8%. Uh, we're on the other side of the surge, certainly. Hospitalizations also are looking really good. Those have declined quite a bit. Deaths are also slowing. Those were a concern for a while because they had been rising. That was expected when you see the infections, you know, soar like that, then you expect, you know, hospitalizations a couple weeks after that will also go up. And then after that, the deaths will also go up. And now you're starting to see them slowly come back down. There's cautious, you know, optimism that this could be the, you know, the time when we enter the endemic phase of this, pan you know, we've, we've been in the pandemic phase, right? There's hope yeah. that we're going to enter this endemic phase where it's manageable, where it's, you know, something like the flu. But there is a loud group of people who are saying we should not be managing COVID at these levels worldwide. Like this should not be just, we should not learn to live with COVID at these levels. Like, it, you know, and, and especially with the vaccination rates being so disparate globally. And even, sure. even in New York, you see, you know, disparate, that vaccination rates are, you know, overall as a state, we've, we've done pretty well, but, you know, you go into some of these communities and some of these rural areas or, and some of these communities of color and the rates are really still 
really low. Like the, I think you'd be hard pressed to find public health experts who would look at those numbers and say, yeah, let's live with this. Well, overall, I'll take cautious optimism over any yes. more dire yep. <laughs> outlooks. So I really appreciate the update. Yes, no problem. That's the good news. But there's another story emerging from the end days of this pandemic that isn't so positive. And then I got sick on Halloween. Colony resident Rebecca Hogan was working as a nurse at St. Peter's Hospital in the fall of 2020 when she tested positive for COVID-19. She says she was most likely exposed to the virus by a patient in her ward. It didn't take long for it to sweep through her household and her husband and one of her three children tested positive. For five weeks we had fevers and it just never ended. It's been 16 months. Since then, Rebecca says her family has dealt with nonstop headaches, fatigue, stomach, back and nerve pain, difficulty breathing, pounding heart, extreme exhaustion, and for Rebecca in particular, brain fog. She says she had to quit her job and stop driving for fear that she would unintentionally harm herself or others because of it. You know, it feels like putting, you know, a drop into a gallon bucket, you know? That's what it feels like sometimes. It evaporates before I even get enough to see it. It's crazy. But, you know, I mean, I know I'm doing the best I can, and I, I know I can't blame myself, but it's just not fair. The system is not set up for us, and um, there is no system for this. The Hogans believe their symptoms are related to what many are now calling post-COVID conditions, also known as long-haul COVID or just simply long COVID. The CDC defines it as a, quote, wide range of new, returning, or ongoing health problems people can experience four or more weeks after first being infected with COVID-19. The World Health Organization says it can be within three months of a COVID infection that it starts, and it estimates 10 to 20 percent of people who've recovered from initial infection can develop long COVID. The CDC says one in three will deal with it. Times Union health reporter Bethany Bump recently took a deep dive into what long COVID is exactly and how it affects people like the Hogans. We talked about what she learned. Now, it's been particularly devastating for people to have long COVID. I mean, I, I, I personally know a few people and you've reported on folks. It's it's not a good experience, right? It's honestly, obviously it varies from person to person, because the thing about these long COVID symptoms is that they're so wide ranging. So like the impact is naturally going to vary from person to person. But I, I can tell you that like the stories that you're hearing, the stories that I'm hearing, they can be devastating because I, I understand like long COVID, a lot of people associate it with exert, you know, fatigue, brain fog. These are, these are words that kind of sound like, oh, you know, like maybe it's the day after a hangover. No. But, but <laughs> symptoms have actually really been devastating for people. And in fact, like a woman I, that I interviewed for my recent story on long COVID, her brain fog was, was so severe. It, it was almost like dementia, I think is how she described it. You know, she would oh, wow. be out to an Ikea with her her daughter in the bathroom, right? And her daughter was two stalls down and 
she's leaving the bathroom and does just completely forgot where she was, who she was with. She didn't even know she was in an Ikea. And, you know, she, she told me that after that incident, she started to get really scared about um, caring for her children because she, she was worried that she would be out with them and completely forget it or that she would be driving and completely forget where she was going. Yeah, the symptoms are, are quite wide ranging and some people can manage them better than others, but it can definitely be absolutely devastating for people. Now, did she receive any sort of official diagnosis that it was long COVID? How does that work? That is a very complicated part of all this. And, and that's one of the reasons that like advocates um, are, are really begging policymakers to assist in this, because a lot of people who have long COVID either have it and don't know that it's long COVID, right? Because if they had a mild infection or if they had an asymptomatic infection, they may not know that like the brain fog they're feeling was associated with COVID. And then, of course, there was a whole group of people early on in the COVID pandemic who were unable to secure tests. Um, and so people who did not have timely access to testing, initially when you know the world started to realize that long COVID was a thing, a lot of the providers and a lot of the health authorities would not authorize treatment for or consultations or reimbursement, et cetera. Um, unless the person had a confirmed positive test. And so there was a whole group of people who were like, look, I have the COVID antibodies. I had all the classic symptoms of COVID and I can't get this treatment. That has since um, policy has gone into effect that has since changed that. So if you, if it, basically it kind of leaves it up to the doctor's discretion. Like if this, this person's describing symptoms that are, that were clearly like associated with a COVID infection, like you don't need the positive test to confirm it. But that said, it's not even as simple as that because at the same time you have a lot of providers who are still not quite convinced this is a thing, right? Because some of these symptoms are ambiguous. Some of them are things that could be associated with so many different things. One thing that came up repeatedly at a panel that the State Department of Health held earlier this month, they were speaking with various experts on long COVID, people who've been treating it, you know, survivors, people who are, you know, coming up with ideas for treatments, et cetera. And one thing they said is like, mentally, like these patients are going through it because a lot of times when they go to get help, the person that they're seeing um, is either dismissive or kind of gaslights them, makes them feel like, you know, no, no, it's not, it's not this. It's actually, it's probably this, or maybe you didn't get, get enough sleep, that kind of thing. And so by the time some of these people do end up getting treatment or do end up going to see a provider who actually believes them, it's just this huge relief that they're even listened to or believed. Now, what exactly is the treatment for something? I know you said the symptoms are, are very varied. I mean, but is there a prescribed treatment for someone who is definitively classified as having long COVID? There was one patient-led survey that where these people who had long COVID were describing their symptoms. And I, I believe the number was over 200 different symptoms. Uh, wow. The survey came up with across like 10 different organ systems. So it's like your gastrointestinal, your, you know, respiratory, your, your heart, all these systems can be impacted, which obviously that affects the type of care and treatment and recovery that you um, can have. So, the way that health systems and hospitals and these these new post-COVID care centers that have popped up are sort of approaching this is through a very uh, multidisciplinary approach. So they, they want 
pulmonologists, right, who can do, you know, tests to see how strong a person's breathing is. And then you want physical therapists, because a lot of the these people, they have what what is sort of termed like spaghetti legs, like they, they have lost their sense of like, place and like sensory and place. So like they go to like proprioception. That's the word. Yes. So they go to, you know, walk. Right. And, and, and in fact, the woman I interviewed for this story told me, she's like, you know, there'll be times when I'm walking to the bathroom and all of a sudden it's like, I forgot how to put my leg down. I lose my balance in cases like that. You know, people will work with physical therapists, pulmonologists, cardiologists, um, all sorts of different specialties that work together and consult on these cases. And it's individualized to the person. And these post-COVID care centers that are popping up are also trying to make sure that they include some type of mental health care as well, because that is like through and through like these patients, you know, the providers I spoke to said like treating the physical side of this is one thing, but the mental side is really seems to be the hardest for for these people. And so they try to make sure that they have psychiatry on board and, and, you know, different mental health providers as well to treat that aspect. It's also worth mentioning here that while research is ongoing, the CDC and the World Health Organization both recommend vaccination as a means of reducing the risk of developing COVID-19, which by extension means a reduced risk of post-COVID conditions. After the break, let's talk about horse racing and some of the major issues the industry is facing right now in New York and across the country. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of The Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Ranieri's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Thoroughbred horse racing made headlines this week when the Kentucky Horse Racing Commission stripped 2021 Kentucky Derby winner Medina Spirit of his title. The three-year-old thoroughbred had tested positive after the race last May for beta-methasone. That is a therapeutic drug that isn't allowed to be administered to thoroughbreds on race days in Kentucky. The horse's trainer, Bob Baffert, was recently suspended from Churchill Downs for 90 days. He's facing a potential ban from New York tracks as well, including Saratoga. Baffert's saga marks the latest controversy in a sport that's facing increasing scrutiny about its integrity and its regulatory efforts. The Times Union's investigations team, led by reporting from Emily Munson, began examining all aspects of the horse racing industry last year. The result is a recently launched ongoing series delving into the so-called sport of kings, 
as it grapples with questions about its funding, oversight, drug testing, and treatment of racehorses. I spoke to Emily recently to find out more about her reporting and what's ahead. So you've been working for the last six months on this investigative project, and it is very complex. It looks at a number of different issues that are surrounding the sport of horse racing, specifically in the state of New York. So can you just give me like a high level summary of of what you've reported so far? You know, what are some of the highlights? Yeah, absolutely. So we have been examining how the New York Gaming Commission regulates the sport of horse racing here. We've looked at its capacity through its equine drug lab to test for various medications and drugs that have been in use by some horse racing participants in the industry or are suspected to be in use. We've looked at the ways that the state agency employs investigators to try to police this issue and some of the limitations around their work. We've also examined how the state supports the horse racing industry um, with financial benefits and how the state of New York and the New York Racing Association reached a deal a number of years ago um, that has directed various financial benefits to the New York Racing Association and then allowed them to offset various operating losses associated with running the three tracks that they operate, which are the Saratoga Race Course, the Aqueduct Racetrack, and Belmont Park in New York. And we've also uh, taken a look at the state's own internal findings of misconduct among employees of the Gaming Commission and two funds that offer financial awards for horses bred in the state. These findings come from inspector general reports that had never previously been released under the administration of former Governor Andrew Cuomo. But we were able to obtain copies of these reports as the Kathy Hochul administration has recently decided to release them. Wow, that's a lot. That's a lot to unpack. And if you go to timesunion.com, you can read a number of the stories that you've published on these topics. Let's talk a little bit about doping, horse doping. It obviously was a very big news headline last year with Medina Spirit, the Kentucky Derby winner who just had his uh, title revoked, if I'm not wrong. What were you looking into? Just kind of give us a high level summary of, of some of the reporting that you did around doping and drug testing and cheating uh, within the sport. To be clear, in horse racing, you know, some horses are administered medications for very good reasons because their veterinarians have prescribed these to treat an injury. Um, right. Mm-hmm. And then there's sort of another category of people who are intentionally misusing therapeutic medications or, you know, illicit, specifically performance enhancing drugs for the purpose of cheating. In our work, we were looking at the state's capacity to go after that cheating. We looked at this through the avenue of drug testing as well as the state's investigative capacities to look in this into this. 
you know, specifically on the issue of drug testing, which the state of New York operates for the sport, we found that the New York Equine Drug Lab has struggled in part because so much significant time and expensive research is needed to do the scientific work of identifying what substances may be in use in horse racing and then developing those mechanisms to be able to reliably test for those mm-hmm. compounds. And then kind of as soon as the scientific regulators have have developed those, those tests and those mechanisms, cheaters may change what they're doing and move on to something that is untestable. People who are not involved in horse racing may not be aware that this is an area that law enforcement rarely gets involved in. In March of 2020, the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District of New York announced the arrest of 29 people in the largest horse racing doping bust in U.S. history. That was massive headline news inside and outside the industry because law enforcement often has has not gotten involved in prosecuting these issues. In New York, there's no state or local law enforcement unit dedicated to these issues. There's no police stationed at the tracks on a regular basis. Instead, these issues are investigated and prosecuted administratively by the states. And current and former investigators have told us that New York State's investigative force, which is about one person per track in New York, with a few people who float between the tracks, has been, you know, at times lackluster. There have been people coming into the unit without experience in horse racing. This unit has been, you know, subject to state budget cuts like other agencies. And also they've been subject to the political influence and the will of the governor and other politicians to to crack down on these issues. So all of those factors have produced this perfect storm. <laughs> yeah, a perfect storm maybe is, is good. <laughs> I was looking for a horse racing pun, but I couldn't come up with one. Trifecta, a trifecta of, of problems. Again, everybody can go and read all of your wonderful reporting and, and you know, kind of learn more about the, these issues on timesunion.com. But you're not done. This isn't the end of, of this reporting project, this investigation. Um, you still have more coming up in the coming weeks. So can you give us a little taste of what we can expect from some pieces that are due to come out soon? Yeah, we, we've had a team of reporters working on these issues, and um, one of our reporters is working on an in-depth story about the path that unfortunately befalls some former racehorses, which is uh, they're sometimes transported to be slaughtered. Um, so she'll be looking at how that happens and some data on that issue specifically. Um, and, and there's been a number of other topics that we're, uh, we've been reporting on and we'll continue to, to keep up our hard work. In 2020, Congress passed the Horse Racing Integrity and Safety Act. 
That legislation was led in part by Democratic Capital Region Congressman Paul Tonko, whose district includes Saratoga. The new law set up a new federal authority to create new regulations for thoroughbred horse racing across the country, including new rules on drug use. Who will enforce those rules is still up in the air, but the new regulations are expected to take effect in the next year or so. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Bethany Bump, and Emily Munson for their contribution to this episode.